Timothy will be our uh, concern tonight, First Timothy, and I just want to take a reading from each chapter. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 3. As I besought thee uh, to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Uh, look down to verse uh, 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Look down to verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, in the chapter 2, Verse 1, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Verse uh, 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness, sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And then we have a list there. Uh, just note uh, verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave and not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found Blameless, even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well, for they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, 
preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Look down to chapter 4, verse 7. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth a little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. Verse 12, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Now look into then just chapter 6. And let's just go to the end of chapter 6. Verse 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with them. Amen. And we know that God will bless his word. Now we're trying to continue our further education, uh, whether it be revision, examination, uh, I trust that it has been helpful for us all just to revisit some of these uh, truths regarding the assembly. And having looked at six, uh, five basic words, uh, grammar basics on Monday night, having thought then uh, of the importance of those words and trying to trace them through, we thought uh, then last night of the subject of gift and the importance on Tuesday night of finding the right place. So this evening I want to think of uh, the, the, the thought of good behavior. Now those words come as we have read from 1 Timothy. In fact, it is really a key verse. Uh, if you know this epistle, uh, really probably the key verse is that verse in chapter 3, that if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of of God and so on. So when we come to 1 Timothy, it's one of the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, Titus, chronologically then 2 Timothy. And pastoral because it really is looking at the care of the church, the care of the local church and how Paul cared for it dearly. And he now wants to instruct Timothy as Timothy finds himself here at the assembly in Ephesus, a much privileged assembly in the teaching that it got and in the writings that were addressed to it. And yet it's a shock maybe to find in Revelation chapter 2 that it's the first of those seven churches that Christ has to deal with and sound out a, a harsh warning. So we shouldn't rest on our laurels. We could get the best teaching, we could have uh, the, the best of fellowship amongst one another, but that's why we need to be constantly revisiting these principles with regard to the local assembly. And Timothy needed reminded of these things, and the, the, the epistle really comes in the form of a charge. So there is apostolic authority behind this, but this is something that Timothy is not just being advised on. This is something that Paul wants him to carry out, as it was in Titus, where it was appointing elders in the various assemblies. Here is a charge. 
and it is in relation to house of God. And that is how the assembly is presented in this epistle. Very beautiful and very important. And of course, following a theme that God has set uh, throughout Scripture, wherever he has dwelt amongst his people. And you can go right the way back to Genesis. I've been trying to impress the young here to, to find these things in their embryo form, in their seed form, in the book of Genesis. And of course, as far as house of God is concerned, we go all the way back to Genesis and chapter number 12. And a contrast is seen between chapter 11, where we have man trying to establish his name, and that is under the auspices of Babel, which means confusion. Turn the page to Genesis chapter 12. God calls out a man called Abraham, and what do we find there? It's not Babel, but he raises an altar at Bethel. And establishing there at Bethel, you will find that Abraham settles at Bethel yonder, which is in the west, facing towards Ai in the east. And that's very instructive because house of God is facing east. And again, God has established that principle even where he dwelt in the Garden of Eden. It was planted eastward in Eden, a garden. And he will follow that with the tabernacle facing eastward. He will follow that with the temple facing eastward. And the wise men will come to see the Lord Jesus. They will come from the east. So God is establishing principles throughout scripture when it comes to his house. Now, of course, when it comes to the local assembly, that doesn't mean that we build our gospel hall facing eastward. No, because we have been emphasizing that we're distinct from Israel. And as you look through the Acts and the Epistles, you don't find any directions as far as north, south, east and west is concerned. In fact, really the only directions are in relation to the gospel and what way it's going. Because we are a heavenly people, not with a building, but says Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, ye are the temple of God. And here in 1 Timothy, he is thinking of the assembly as house of God. And really, <clears throat> the thought is, not so much the house in relation to a building, but household. That's why I judge that in the pastoral epistles, there is so much emphasis placed on the family, and the father, and the sons, and the woman, and the elder woman, and the servants, and the slaves, because it's the household, really, that uh, he has in mind. And of course, that was very, very relevant to Christians living in the first century, where some of them would have even been household servants or slaves. And therefore, the household and its structure was very, very important. And as well as that, maybe something worth pointing out. When we think of the first century, and we thought, I think, on Tuesday night of uh, the, the upper room yonder at Troas, and how Eutychus fell as a young man from the third story. Now, that would indicate, uh, just according to how accurate history is, that, that that was typical of a house that these uh, believers would have perhaps lived in. It, it was the, the insula or the domus, two types of houses, but that third story house was very often a house where a family would have lived. Maybe grandparents as well. The whole household maybe in that one room. 
And they would have got up in the morning and they would have rolled up their mat and they would put it in the corner and the woman maybe would have went over to, to her loom where she was working and began work. The man, the man or the woman perhaps over to his potter's wheel and began his business. And that all functioned in that one room. And equally, probably in many cases where the local assembly met. The house that was in Priscilla and Aquila's house. And you remember the assembly met in the house of Mary to pray. And so that was a familiar uh, concept. Therefore, drawing from the illustration of the household was very relevant to learning principles with regard to the local assembly because the assembly very often met in the house. That also meant, by the way, that there was many uh, people from business and work associates coming through the house on a regular basis. For in those apartment blocks on the ground floor, there would have then maybe been market stalls where they would have sold their goods or gone out to market. Now, we must keep that in context as we think of the direction that Paul gives even for the family and for the men and the women, just in what he was thinking of. Now, as he addresses Timothy, there are some problems. It's a divided house. And as we think of house of God, you could think as you go through 1 Timothy, of course, not just of Bethel with regard to Abraham, but of course with regard to Jacob. And you remember it was Bethel, that place where he was aware that God was in this place and he saw the ladder up and down from heaven mentioned there yonder at the uh, fulfillment of at the, at the end of John chapter 1. And so as we think of Jacob and house of God, there is much to learn and compare with Jacob's life and what is seen here in 1 Timothy. But in context... I want to just look really in the, in, in the sort of theme of what we have been thinking of in relation to education. Paul is really, he is mentoring, he is teaching Timothy. Uh, we might say that Timothy is like you and I, he is in the school of God. And there, there are a number of problems in this school as far as the assembly at Ephesus is concerned. And I just want to touch on each of them this evening just for a few moments. And so first of all, we're going to see in chapter 1, Timothy, there's a problem with teachers. You know, any school is only as good as first of all its head and then its teachers. And there's teaching that is a problem here because there are some that are teaching wrong doctrine. Then we're going to see in chapter 2 that there's issues with gender. Is that something that rings a bell today in our society? I tell you it is. And brethren and sisters, we need to see that Paul puts great importance on gender. Then with overseers, a good report is necessary. And if time permits, we look just at the gymnasium and exercise and the great emphasis that he puts on godliness and exercise unto godliness. For that is a key word in this epistle. As we think of house of God, and as we think of the behavior, that is the conduct for house of God, what is it going to be characterized by? It is going to be godliness. Now we must grasp that. In a day I, I feel when perhaps you and I are losing sight of the greatness and the holiness of God in his house. 
we come to 1 Timothy, we see that the great subject and the great objective of this teaching is to produce in the believers godliness. You say, what is it? In its very simple form, godlikeness. Godly. Men and women. Young people. That's what we need in 2020. In a world that is godless. In a world that is going to flood the minds of our young people with what they call gender fluidity. What are we going to do in it? We just go back to God. We go back to the word of God. And we do not feel that we need to be embarrassed with this word godliness. Young people, if your peer group is embarrassed and is not interested in godliness, I would say just maybe look for others who are. Because that's the whole objective of this epistle is godliness. Oh, godliness with contentment, he says, is great gain. Therefore, that's what we're after, godliness. Is there any one of us in the meeting tonight that is, is happy with our godliness? But we're, we're godly enough? I don't think so. We can all say this evening that we would long to be more godly in our character. We would long to be more godly in our thinking. What about the teachers? Guidance for teachers, chapter 1. Now when you come to this epistle, just a little, uh, just a little helpful point here. When you come to 1 Timothy, you need to be very good at sums. And I'm not thinking of sums in S-U-M-S. I'm thinking of S-O-M-E-S, sums. Because throughout this epistle, this word crops up. And it's very, very important. So let us just look at verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went unto Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Let's just look at a few other occurrences. Verse 6, from which some have swerved, having turned aside unto vain jangling. Let's just look into chapter 4, for instance. Verse 1, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. And you can trace that word and underline it. What's the point? Simply this, that when we come to wrong teaching. And doctrine that is not according to the word of God. But very often it just starts with one or two people, a small minority. Paul is saying to Timothy, now this is just some. And so just a few people, just one person, uh, and he gets maybe a follower. And he, he works at something that is wrong. And he tries to get support. And he won't back down because no one likes to be wrong. And so we must beware in the assembly with the sums. So don't ever think just maybe as an overseer who is a shepherd in the company and just looking to the care of the flock, the pastoral care of the flock. And somebody maybe has, has a wrong notion. And you notice that maybe you could maybe just sense it in how, they, in how they pray. Maybe just an underlying doctrinal error that's creeping in. Maybe it is just in a young person who is inexperienced and who has maybe just uh, taken something off YouTube and the God channel and is just trying it out. 
and maybe hasn't investigated it in Scripture. And you say, oh, well, they're just young. It'll not matter. And it's not really. They'll, they'll grow out of I would just be careful because the sum could just be the problem that wreaks total havoc within the assembly. Whether it is intentional or whether it is in ignorance, wrong doctrine must be addressed and it must be dealt with. Now, what was the problem here? Well, the problem was in relation to the law. And what was being taught was not edifying. You see, the one thing we have been stressing this week is that doctrine, when it is taught, and the word of God, when it is taught, it should edify. And what wrong doctrine will do is divide. Well, we all know that, don't we? Somebody brings something up and it's wrong. And before you know, you have a division. And one of the reasons that you have division often is because, well, there'll be a group of people and they're none the wiser as to whether it's right or wrong. So they take the side of the person as to whether they like them or not. And before you know, a division can creep in. And so you need to deal with the sum. In this case, it was the law. And they were teachers and they were championing the law. But it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the law. The law was good. But it was being used in the wrong context because Paul is pointing out to Timothy here that when it comes to the law, that the law was made not for those who were good, but it was made not for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. So there was a way in which the law was to be used. It was to be used lawful. There was an audience for whom the law was to be addressed to. And we know, of course, with our full canon of Scripture, that as far as the gospel is concerned, we do not go out to preach the law, because the law can never justify a man. The law is a curse. It only condemns. It only shows God's standard that none of us can ever keep to. Now, you say, well, we know all that, really. Why are you telling us about the law? Well, from time to time, I find that sometimes you do meet young believers who will get involved in evangelism. And they are not acquainted with the context of which the law occurs and how it should be used. And so there's just the danger that you could go out with uh, preaching the Ten Commandments. And you might think that the law was given and therefore people have to go down the law and tick off what they cannot keep and therefore that proves that they're a sinner. Not at all. We're not a sinner because we break the law. The reason that we can't keep the law is because we're born sinners. It's a difference. Now we must get that in the gospel. And that's why we need to emphasize man's ruin. Not just the fact that he sins, that's important, but the fact that he is a sinner. And so says John, writing in chapter 3 of his beloved gospel, for, Christ sent, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. No, but that the world might be saved through him. Why? Because man is condemned already. So, Therefore, the law must be used in its right context. And what we find is then that when it's used right in its right context, it is 
complementary to the doctrine of Scripture. And I want to point this out just before moving on. Because just notice that in verse 10 he says, For them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be anything, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel. Now there you have the gospel linked, inseparable from doctrine. So don't fall for anyone who says, well, we just preach the gospel. That's all that matters. Doctrine doesn't matter because they're inseparable. We, we learned that on Monday night. I'm just showing it from 1 Timothy chapter 1, that it's all one. And therefore, that's why we must preach the gospel intelligently. And that's why it's important before you ever come to the exhortation of Romans 12 and the sacrificial service of Romans 12, he says, I beseech you by the pure mercies of God. What are those mercies? Those mercies are everything that is in Romans 1, chapters 1 to 8, in terms of the doctrinal section of the gospel. So young people, understand Romans chapter 1 right through to chapter 8 to get an understanding of these things in the gospel so that uh, it is sound doctrine that we are preaching. What's the purpose of it? That the gospel might go out. And we have this lovely statement of the gospel. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You know, we don't have to go to complicated Old Testament verses and twist them all out of proportion to preach the gospel. Here's a beautiful gospel verse that we can stand up in any place and at any time and proclaim. Beautiful gospel truth. And Paul just revels in it. And yet at the end, he says, of whom I am chief. What a sense he had of what he was in the sight of God. You see, <clears throat> that's the first step to godliness, brethren and sisters, isn't it? It's to be saved, to understand what we are before God, a sinner in the sight of God, and to believe the gospel. And what will it produce it will produce glory to God. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory. What a statement of God's character and God's holiness and his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. Oh, that we would stress and preach the greatness of God in the gospel. You know, we don't necessarily need to get into an apologetic debate as to the existence of God, but to stress when we preach Christ, his deity and his glory. And in the ministry of God's word, the objective is that God might be glorified because that is the word here that is used, glory and honor. And you go through your Bible and you do a study of the word glory and you will find that frequently God pairs off the word glory with these other words. And they will just help us to understand what the glory of God is. Oh, the world. Don't think that this is an, an old-fashioned word. The, wor the world knows what glory is, doesn't it? The world knows what glory is because glory for the world is that which draws attention to self. It's that which the, the sports stars revel in. To have glory. 
to have honour bestowed upon your name and my name in a worldly sense will bring to me and you and I glory. But when it comes to God's assembly, could I stress the whole purpose of it all, brethren and sisters, is that he will get the glory. That's what it's about. And you see, if we can grasp that right at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1, then we're really on to what godliness is all about. Godliness is about God getting the glory. It's about him getting the praise. It's about him getting the honor. That's why when those high priestly garments were given, they were given those garments of holiness. They were given for glory and beauty. That's where true beauty is. It's in godliness. We're going to see that when it comes to chapter 2. That's where we see beauty. It's when God is honored and he is praised and his name is honored. Says, Says David later on, glory and honor are in his presence. Worship him in the beauty of holiness. Give unto his name the honor that is due. Oh, brethren and sisters, may we, may we never cease to try and ensure that God gets the glory. And says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just at the end of that chapter, in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. You see, dear brother and sister, that's really why we're in the assembly. That's what will keep us there. Not just to please one another. It's not just to please the brethren. No, it's, to, it's, it's for his glory. And you see, when we're doing it for his glory, that means when everybody else is gone, we'll still keep going. It's just for him. And so, guidance for teachers. Good and sound doctrine. But when we come to chapter 2, we're going to call this gender matters. And really, chapter 2 is, is important for a number of reasons, because we have, a, have in chapter 2, I judge, the assembly prayer meeting. And in the first half of the chapter, verse 1 to 7, we have the responsibility of the assembly to pray. And when you look at that, the focus again is on the gospel. Verse 1 to 2, the assembly duty. And you have there the manner of prayer. And you have really... A, 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 a compass, we might say, of prayer. Four, uh, four directions with regard to prayer. Number one, supplication. Number two, prayer. Number three, intercession. And number four, giving of thanks. And those are the four aspects of prayer that should occupy any assembly. So we should be a thankful people. But, but we're not just there to give thanks and that's, that's it. No, there will be times when there is supplication needed. And that is praying on behalf of others. And that is making our requests known to God. How thankful we are that there were those who prayed for us, brethren and sisters, eh? When we couldn't pray for ourselves. And thanksgiving and supplication. And there'll be intercessions. And that's really the conversation with God. That is really the, 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 the praying on behalf. And then the word prayer really, the, the thought in that is of the one that we're praying to. We're praying to God. Now, that's important. Because it, remember when we do pray, there's a pattern to pray. We pray unto the Father through the Son. But we don't have anywhere in Scripture where we pray directly to the Lord Jesus. But we pray, you'll see the example, unto the Father through the Son. Because one of the reasons that we do pray is that we might have fellowship with the Father. 
That's one of the reasons he wants us to pray. And when God, when the Lord Jesus taught his own to pray, he says, your father in heaven knoweth what you have need of before you even mention it. And so we need to pray to God. So there was a manner of prayer. What was the matter of prayer? Well, he tells us what to pray for. He says that we might pray for all men, for kings, all that are in authority. Now, you say, well, what's, what's so big about that? Well, it was quite a big thing to uh, emphasize. They were living in the days of Nero. Now, he wasn't the nicest person you would just want living next door to you. Nero, and you were, you were to pray for him. But that's what we're to do, to pray for our government and to pray for those that are in authority, but to pray for all men. And why is that? Because verse 3 to 6, we have now not only the assembly's duty, but God's desire. What's God's desire? It's, it's his desire that we will pray for all men because he will have all men to be saved. Now, of course, you're noticing the alls as we go down this chapter. They're exceedingly beautiful. And it's, why have we to, to pray for all men? Because he wants all men to be saved, and that's his purpose for all men. And not only is it his purpose, and it should be our prayer, but he's made provision for all men. It would be a bit pointless, God wanting us to pray for all men, if there wasn't salvation for all men, wouldn't it? Now, I trust that we're, we're able to pray for all. Why? Because of the mighty provision. Another beautiful gospel text that we love to preach, for there is one God. And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Pray for all. God will have all men to be saved. And Christ gave himself a ransom for all. He didn't, by the way, and I'm not being critical of a word, but he didn't pay the ransom price. He gave himself as the ransom. That just makes it all the more beautiful, what doesn't it? He gave himself. He didn't just go to Calvary and make a payment and a down payment. No, he went to Calvary and he gave himself a ransom for all. That's why there is provision for all. Because there's not a man, I don't believe, that Christ would ever turn away from. And there's not a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who has ever come to Christ that has been turned away. I believe there's salvation for every man and woman on this planet tonight. And I'll go further. I believe that there was salvation for every man and woman who's in hell tonight. Why? Because he gave himself a ransom for all. Now, that's our responsibility to pray. And that's what makes up Paul's doctrine. That's why he can go out and preach to the Gentiles in faith and verity. But the second half of the chapter now is the role of men and women in public. And so we have... The importance of the assembly prayer meeting. But that prayer meeting should be orderly. And maybe people that come in don't always realize that there is an order in what we do. And that should be no surprise, should it? Because we're going to see that at the bottom of God's order, whether it be in the tabernacle, whether it be in the temple, whether it be now in the assembly, the temple of God, that order is seen in creation. That's where his order is established. And therefore, when it comes to the assembly and it comes to gender, we see his order. Now look at verse 8 just very carefully for a moment with me. 
Because what we want to see here is the praying of a godly man. Now, Mr. Darby maybe gives a better translation of this. I will that men, therefore, that men pray everywhere. What he says is uh, that men pray in every place. So we're thinking here of men praying in each assembly, each gathered company. And what I want to see here is, first of all, his role in prayer, and then secondly, his rule in prayer. Now, there's an important word that we must note here, and that is the Greek word for men, because there's a change takes place. You see up in verse number three, where we said that God's will is that all men should be saved. There is the Greek word anthropos, and that means mankind. Okay. But when it comes to here, verse 8, it's not now anthropos, I will therefore that men, that is the word anor, which is males, pray everywhere. You see the important change. So he's emphasizing now specifics with regard to gender. And so likewise in verse 9, he will use a feminine word indicating the female. And therefore, it is the men that pray publicly. Why? Because we're going to see that the women are publicly to remain silent. Doesn't mean that they can't pray, but it's public prayer that is in view here. That's the order. And so, that's his role in prayer, is the male to pray publicly. The rule for prayer is that he has to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. So his manner of prayer, it's a holy function, holiness in prayer. Now, it's not, as we pointed out last night, that he is to be gifted in order to pray. But there is a condition, it should be holy hands. And then there's also here not only a manner, but there's a motive. It's without wrath and doubting. And so, we must be careful sometimes in our motive for prayer, just just practically, prayer is not a place where we should be having a go at somebody. It's not where you see somebody doing something and you think, well, I'll pray for them on Thursday night and really you're letting the whole assembly know what they did or what, they, what you saw. That's, that's horizontal prayer. That should not be our motivation in praying. And so if it is that you, you, you think that that's what you're going to do if you get on your feet, if you're better, you're better just sitting where you are. But there should be a motive. Holy hands praying, and therefore a manner as well. Now verse 9 is the profile of a godly woman. What is that? Well, we have a number of things here that are important. But let me just point out very quickly the words, in like manner also. Now notice what it says and what it doesn't say. It does not say in like manner also that women pray. So just in case you're in any doubt, he's made a very clear distinction with the genders. That the men are to pray publicly. Does that mean the woman has no role at all? No, we're going to see that she has a godly role according to her gender. Now, I just pause there. I mentioned it at the start. But you and I know in the world today, this is one of the great subjects that is under attack. From our children entering school, well, they are taught 
what is foreign to Scripture. And therefore, brethren and sisters, may we together, as a company, have the courage of our convictions to stand for what is true and do not be swayed by the world's influence And I would add quickly to that, to the world's vocabulary that it has created to try and describe what it is attempting to enforce upon our young people. Because it's so easy to just imbibe their vocabulary into our own as if it's something normal. And so we talk about gender fluidity as if it's just something that we are acquainted with, acceptable, and it's to be just understood and accepted. Listen, it's not in Scripture. It's not in the Bible. And more than that, it's an absolute abomination to God. And it's the absolute antithesis of what godliness is. No, it just goes with what was in Genesis 11, and that is Babylon and its confusion. And so our young people are told that you're born in a gender universe and you're assigned either planet M or planet F and if you don't like planet M you can go to planet F and vice versa and not happy with one explore the universe according to where you want to be now we need to be so careful that that ideology does not just influence us in any way when it comes to the assembly so that we either blur the genders in any way or separate them in a way that God never intended. All in the name of diversity. Because Paul deals with them as God has designed them, and that is in creation. Therefore, the men praying in public. The woman, well, the first thing we notice is her Modest apparel. Really three things here with the woman I want to point out. Her modest apparel, her sobriety, that's the message that she gives, and then what she professes, that's her motivation for what she does. Now those are very, very important issues. And I would say right away, I have great sympathy for sisters and the world in which they are living. It's not easy being a young sister in school or college and having to take a stand with regard to these things. But be encouraged. In a world that is seeking to blur the genders, where you have opportunity, dear sister, to display and to manifest your femininity, do it at every opportunity that you have. Why? Because it's bringing glory to God who made them, not on a number of different planets in a gender universe, but he made them on one planet, and he made them male and female. And that has never changed, and never will. Therefore, for the males as well, where you have the opportunity, ensure that you don't blur the genders as well. And that we keep them in their order. And as God has given by design and by pattern. Above all in God's assembly. In God's house. 
You know, when we go into the houses of the world and we go into the workplaces, I'm totally aware of the pressures that are on people in the workplace to have to abide by rules and vocabulary and job descriptions and all that. And, and you have to be wise. We, we don't go out and preach to certain segments of society and victimize or anything like that. We preach the love of God to every man and woman and boy and girl. But where we have opportunity in house of God to display what God has given us, may we not be ashamed to put on public display godliness according to what he has here. Modest apparel. All that I would say is this with regard to apparel. Everything that we, everything that we wear sends out a message. Whether it's going to work in a uniform, a fireman or a nurse, you know to look at them what they represent. I could take you to parts of London tonight and I'm sure New York would be the same. And you would know to look at women according to what they are wearing, the message that they are sending out and the reason they are sending out that message. Their apparel is not modest for a reason. So, don't let any of us think that what we wear does not send out a message. In context here, the emphasis is actually being put on that which is expensive. Gold, pearls are costly array, as well as that which distinguishes gender. So we must be very careful uh, as we move one amongst each other that, 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 that we don't put overdue emphasis on on, on what scripture says is, is really worshipping that which we wear. And that which is really drawing attention to self. And you could draw attention to yourself in a number of ways by what you wear. And by what you don't wear. So let the Spirit of God work in all our hearts. That what we send out in terms of a message is consistent with what we profess. Because that's really what it's saying here. That women that profess godliness are recognized by their good works and by their modest apparel. The profile of a godly woman. What's your profile like? You see, the difficulty we face today is now people end up with two profiles, don't they? Or you say now, you're going to give social media a bashing. Here it comes. No, don't worry. Uh, my wife and family are here tonight and I'm not going to do that because it can be used to very good effect. But all I'll say is this. Be very, be very sure that your profile on social media is consistent with your profile in house of God. And that there's a consistency. Because you and I know, in a world of fantasy, Hollywood and fiction, people just want to put on there what will get the approval of the world. What will get a few more likes? What will get a few more hits? And if that means you run your photograph through Photoshop a few times just to make yourself look better, no, before you hit the filter, ask yourself this question. Is it pertaining unto godliness or is it pertaining unto the flesh? For says Paul, we are to crucify the flesh and the lusts thereof. 
And the one thing that we'll know when we come to study godliness is, it's not about me. It's his glory that's at stake. Therefore, we have the importance of gender. And at the root of it, the reason is given. It's very clear. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Why is a woman not to teach or to usurp authority over the man? It's very simple, because Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Eve was in the transgression. Adam was not deceived. The woman will be given the privilege of childbearing. We thought of Mary uh, on Lord's Day morning. And we think of the many privileges that a woman has. But in the context of Scripture, there is order with regard to headship, subjection. It's nothing whatsoever to do with superiority or inferiority. For else then we find that headship that exists within the Godhead, 1 Corinthians 11, where the head of the man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. There's no thought of superiority or inferiority. You know, it seems to me strange sometimes that we will not have any issue with headship when it comes to the world around us. For instance, you take a school. There's a head. The teachers would never think that in some way they were inferior to the head. It is not a matter of superiority or inferiority, but it is rather authority, subjection. And without it, there will be confusion. What do we see in the world today where it has overturned gender? Whereas it overturned God's creatorial order, we see confusion. And that's just the word that Babylon means. That's what Babel means. It means confusion. Now, moving quickly on from gender matters, we come in chapter 3 to a good report. Here is the overseer. And some will say we have in chapter 3 a list of qualifications. I prefer to veer away from qualifications to qualities. For this reason, that to be an overseer is not a matter of sitting an exam. It's not a matter of having a list of qualifications that you tick, and if you have them all, then you're an overseer. No, 1 Timothy 3 makes clear that the overseer is actually a work. And yes, there are qualities that are necessary to do the work and should be present. And as you go down them, they're very challenging. I'm just picking out one. It's verse 7. He must have a good report of them that are without. And that is a very similar meaning to the first quality, which is blameless, the husband of one wife. Why is it that an overseer, wanting to do the work of an overseer, should be blameless and should be without reproach from them that are without? For this reason, that if there's any accusation that can be made, the whole oversight is compromised. All the overseers. And secondly, the whole assembly is compromised. And so it's essential that he's blameless. And therefore, if he's blameless, I would imagine that most of these other qualities will be present. And so it is that the overseer, and I just encourage those tonight who are overseers, it's a good work still. And I would say it's one of the greatest necessities that we have in assemblies today that God will raise up overseers to do the work of an overseer. That there might be a plurality of overseers. 
Not a family of overseers, but a plurality of God-fitted men who are doing the work and are recognized by the company. And let me tell you tonight, you young people, pray for your overseers. Every one of us, pray for overseers in the work that they have to do and that they'll be preserved in the work that they do. Because we all should be doing a similar work. That's deacon work, service. And what is the deacon to do? There's a list of qualities for the deacon. And in doing that work, why is it important that we're all involved in this work? Because, listen to what it says, they that have used the office of a deacon, well, purchase to themselves a good degree. So here we have, on one hand, a good report and a good degree. A good report, that's the overseer from without. A good degree, what that is simply saying is every one of us should be involved in this work so that we have the respect of one another within the assembly. So the deacon serving in the assembly, striving for these qualities, is therefore going to be respected by those who are in the assembly and therefore we must have the respect of one another. So it is that behavior is necessary in the house of God. How thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And then you say, why is this sudden hymn given without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness? Seems a bit of out of place, doesn't it? Just at the end of this chapter. Well, as I ponder it, I think it's just perfectly placed. Do you know why? Because I think in this, we have the example of the greatest overseer of all. I think in this we have the example of the greatest deacon, the greatest servant of all. For great is the mystery of godliness. In this man we have the example of what godliness really is. His Christ-likeness. Here is the greatest servant of all. God manifest in flesh. The one who is the bishop and overseer of our souls. Why? Because he was justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up into glory. There's the glory again. You see how it's all pointing to him, brethren and sisters. This is not 1 Timothy 3, that we might just get occupied with ourselves, pat ourselves on the back for all the qualities that we have. No, it's that we might be striving towards godliness and Christ-likeness. Why? That he gets more glory. Oh, that he would get it. And that he is owed it. Well, we'll have to leave it tonight. I just want to point one more out. And I skip over the gymnasium and the bodily exercise that profiteth for a little time. But just notice what the young men are to do in verse 13. There's just a little bit of an instruction here for attendance. And what is it? It's attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. You say we're back at it again. The exhortation and the reading and the doctrine. We are. Because this is just at the root of it all. How's your attendance? You say, well, I'm not out at the meetings every night. I could be out more. No, I'm not, I'm not asking you how your attendance at the meeting is. We should be at every meeting. You say, why? why is, because he's there. 
The Lord is present. And that's fellowship. You see, sometimes we pat ourselves on the back. We say, I made it to the prayer meeting on Thursday night. I did well this week. Listen, that's what, that's what we're all supposed to be there. No, this attendance is something else. It's attendance to reading the word of God. How's your attendance at that? If you were to get a present mark for every day that you've read the Word of God this week, how many present marks, how many absent marks would I have? It's challenging, brethren and sisters, isn't it? Oh, that we might have that, that attendance and that diligence to the Word of God and to the doctrine that is within, that we might be able to behave ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. May God help us just in these little exhortations from 1 Timothy to have a care for the local assembly, which is house of God in the midst of the confusion of Babel all around about us. And may it be for his glory, shall we pray.